excited to welcome you to Thought Leaders in Law and Business, presented by law firm Hodgson Russ, in partnership with the Business Journals. In this mini-series, John Tebow, publisher of Buffalo Business First, sits down with Hodgson Russ attorneys to get their take on some of the nation's hottest issues and how they affect our communities. Today, I'm joined by Hodgson Russ attorneys Mark Harmon and Aaron Teske, who walk us through the importance of auditing and some of the best practices we should all be looking and striving for. Let's start with a brief introduction of today's panelists. Mark and Aaron are both partners at Hodgson Russ and are experienced business advisors and litigators who have tried cases to verdict throughout the United States in state and federal courts, as well as represented clients in arbitrations, mediations, and regulatory matters. These practices include representation of financial institutions, stock transfer agents, real estate developers, accounting firms, healthcare facilities, and a range of employers in complex disputes, investigations, litigations, examinations, and administrative and enforcement proceedings. Mark regularly defends accounting firms against allegations of malpractice in their auditing engagements and represents employers in a broad range of employment matters, including cases of discrimination, non-competition, and wrongful termination. He has also handled contested probate and accounting proceedings in surrogates court, including defending executors and trustees against charges of fraud, mismanagement, and misappropriation. Aaron also regularly defends accounting firms against allegations of malpractice in their auditing engagements and has advised auditors on best practices and drafting engagement letters. Both Mark and Aaron also represent and advise transfer agents on issues relevant to their business, including responding to issuer and shareholder requests in compliance with securities laws, defending claims in judicial proceedings, and representing transfer agents in connection with investigations and examinations by the SEC. Mark and Aaron, welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today. And it's a topic that I think many of us sometimes take for granted and its importance is immense and that's auditing and its best practices. Why don't we jump right in with the basics? Clearly you have a lot of experience, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that and some of the important things and issues that you see popping up with many companies today with their auditing procedures. Yeah, thanks, John, and thanks for that introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, Mark and I have been, like you said, representing auditors for a long time, for over a decade, and and Mark longer than that, uh, in all types of matters, like you said, regulatory matters and litigation. We have represented auditors in connection with SEC and PCAOB investigations as third-party witnesses responding to subpoenas in preparation for giving testimony, as defendants in malpractice and other actions. Uh, we primarily practice in New York and New Jersey, and have a lot of experience educating judges, mediators, and opposing counsel, not only on the legal issues involved in audit malpractice cases, but on the purpose of an audit and significantly on the limitations of the audit. It will be obvious to the auditors listening to this podcast that the purpose of an audit is to express an opinion as to whether the financial statements taken as a whole are fairly presented in conformity with generally accepted accounting principles. The purpose of an audit is not, contrary to what many lay people believe, to prepare the financial statements or to detect management's fraud in preparing the financial statements. But the public often has an unrealistic idea of the role auditors perform. And for that reason, and because auditors have insurance and may be viewed as deep pockets, auditors can be easy targets for lawsuits. 
that's really interesting. I would be part of that general public uh, that, that, that you just described. So thank you for that. Uh, clearly such an important part. I think many folks don't think about auditing until there's an issue. And clearly there are probably many things that auditors can do to protect themselves against lawsuits. And I would love it, Aaron, if you could kind of get into a little bit more detail in terms of what some of those best practices are. Of course. So, you know, doing good work goes a long way, but even doing good work can leave you exposed to potential litigation, which is why you want to implement some safety nets for yourself. These safety nets can help you when an auditor's work suffers from being less than perfect, or if you find yourself a defendant in a case where your work was stellar, because unfortunately that can happen. Uh, you do not have to make a mistake to find yourself named in a lawsuit. These safety nets can limit your exposure to meritless claims, making it less likely that you're sued to begin with, and also helping your chances of getting out of bad cases early. So engagement letters are the best way to create these safety nets. At their best, engagement letters don't just set the scope of an engagement, although that is an important component. They also limit the scope of liability. And because clients sign engagement letters, they're binding contracts that may be relevant evidence even at a motion to dismiss stage. They have the potential to change the standard that a plaintiff has to meet to state a claim at the very outset of litigation. In other words, you can put a stop to litigation before it even starts or before the expensive hmm. and it's sometimes protracted discovery phase begins. Um, one other thing I will mention that can help auditors minimize exposure to claims, which may be obvious, is the work papers. And by that, I mean having the right information in your work papers, including, of course, the audit evidence you need, but equally important is excluding anything you don't need. So... For example, you probably don't want to include in your work papers notes concerning quality control issues which arise during the audit. So quick story, we represented an auditor in a malpractice action where the auditor's client was a broker dealer and the broker dealer's management was engaged in a criminal fraud and bribery scheme. And the broker dealer's claim against the auditor generally relied upon the auditor's failure to detect its management's fraud which of course is not the purpose of an audit. But again, there is this disparity in what the purpose of an audit is and what the public perception of the purpose of an audit is. So setting that aside for the moment, the case progressed through discovery, largely because it was a New Jersey case where in peri delicto did not apply and there was no limitation on liability clause, but we'll get into that more later. Um, and in discovery, the plaintiff picked up on the fact that the auditor had made comments in its work papers concerning the quality control process. And those comments proved to be fertile ground for questions and insinuations, which made mediation and a summary judgment motion much more difficult for the auditors. So if that had been left out, would have been something that would have been an issue. Correct. And it just, it gives the plaintiff snippets that a jury or a judge who already have this misconception of what the purpose of an audit is, something to latch on to, to have reason to believe that there is an issue with the audit when there may not really have been an issue with the audit. Got it. So engagement letter is extremely important. Is there, there anything else that you feel auditors should be considering in their engagement letters to minimize their exposure? Yes, there are actually so many ways that auditors can use engagement letters to minimize exposure. And one of the most beneficial clauses to include in an engagement letter is a limitation on liability clause. 
A limitation on liability clause is exactly as it sounds. It preemptively exculpates an auditor or a party from certain claims, specifically negligence claims. And in most states, including New York and New Jersey, these clauses are generally enforced, which is equally true in the context of a contract to provide professional services, such as auditing services. So, for example, the clause may look something like this. Auditor will not be liable to client or any third party for any expenses, losses, damages, etc., to the extent finally determined to have resulted solely from the auditor's gross negligence or willful misconduct. Now, I'm giving this as an example only because there are limitations on enforcement of these clauses and those limitations are state specific. So the example clause I just gave is not going to be effective for every auditor. For example, Montana and Virginia will not enforce clauses which exculpate a party from negligence. But in New York and in New Jersey and many other states, these clauses are generally enforced unless you try to attempt to exculpate yourself from gross negligence, which is void as against public policy. And valid limitation of liability clauses can be helpful on motions to dismiss, which is early in the case and, again, can stop a case before it enters discovery. So not to get too in the weeds here, but on a motion to dismiss, a judge decides whether the complaint states enough facts to state a cause of action. The judge does not concern itself with whether the facts can be proven at that point and assumes for the motion to dismiss that all of the allegations are true. Where an engagement letter includes a limitation on liability clause that precludes negligence claims, a plaintiff has to specify facts which could be the basis for a gross negligence claim. That is a lot harder to do because gross negligence differs in kind, not only degree from basic negligence. So gross negligence, and I'm using air quotes here because this is the standard, (laughs) evinces a reckless disregard or smacks of intentional wrongdoing. So in other words, a plaintiff cannot just plead a bunch of negligence, but has to plead facts which would tend to show the auditor was reckless or made intentional errors in its audit. And many fewer circumstances are going to rise to that level. So again, I'll give you a quick example. We represented an auditing firm whose client was an investment fund. The investment fund sued the auditor for negligence and accounting malpractice to recover fees the investment fund had paid to its third-party administrator. Here's what happened. The investment fund invested in hard-to-value assets. They included companies that were involved in workouts, liquidations, reorganizations, all level three assets. A level three asset is the riskiest and hardest type of asset to value because it is the least liquid and does not generally have an observable market value. So the investment fund hired a third-party administrator to manage and value the fund's portfolio and interestingly agreed to pay the administrator a percentage of the value of the fund's portfolio. So (laughs) hard-to-value assets, that's kind of a tricky incentive structure. (laughs) Anyway, the fund finds out, surprised, that its portfolio is overvalued and sues not its administrator, but its auditors. We believe there were some contractual limitations which may have precluded the fund from suing its administrators, but that really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, the auditors were the defendants. So the audit engagement letter did not include a limitation on liability clause. So the claims against the auditor were for negligence, not gross negligence. The case went through a highly contentious and lengthy discovery phase, which centered on the flaws and underlying third-party valuations on which the auditor had relied to some degree. 
Now, reliance on independent third-party valuations of admittedly hard-to-value assets would very likely not have risen to the level of gross negligence, and a gross negligence requirement in that engagement letter may have significantly short-circuited the end result in that case. I'd like to add that that case was a, led to a kind of funny result because we were able to keep the administrator in the case on a third party claim for uh, indemnification and contribution. And as it turned out, the administrator had an agreement with the fund, which required the fund to pay the administrator's legal fees. So the more we kept the administrator in the case, the more expensive it was for the fund. And ultimately, we were able to leverage that into a very favorable settlement. It is not typical that we get lucky on these kinds of strategic moves that, that could impact settlement in favor of our client. There is kind of a sister or a similar provision uh, which you can use that is like a limitation of liability provision, but which limits the recoverable amount as opposed to the types of claims that can be brought. So a limitation on damages can exclude from potential recovery categories of damages. So for example, consequential and punitive damages. And again, these clauses are generally enforceable in New York, subject to certain limited exceptions, including that gross negligence exception we talked about. So this clause might specify that For example, the only recoverable damages are the fees paid to the auditor pursuant to the engagement letter, and that boxes in a would-be plaintiff such that a damages award may be more tolerable and might even be used as leverage in a settlement or or may possibly dissuade a plaintiff from bringing the claim in the first place if it's not a sufficient number to justify the cost of litigation. A lot there. Thank you for that. And appreciate the, uh, I think tying it to a case is so important to, to, to give us that perspective of what it means in real life. So I thank you both for that. Aaron, before we got on, we talked a little bit about alternative dispute resolution. I would love it if you could give us a little bit of a definition of that, as well as share your thoughts on how this is an important part of the auditing process or can be. Sure. So when we talk about alternative dispute resolution, we are usually talking about two different ways of resolving matters outside of litigation in the courts, and that is mediation and arbitration. Mediation involves a neutral third party who assists the two adversarial parties in negotiating a settlement to resolve their conflict. Arbitration, on the other hand, involves a neutral third party who acts as the final decision maker on the merits of the claim. So while parties to a mediation do not have to settle or resolve their dispute in mediation, parties to an arbitration cannot refuse to abide by the arbitrator's final decisions. Both mediation and arbitration are significantly less costly and time consuming than litigation. Arbitration, however, is, like I said, binding and does not have the same procedural protections that litigation has. So the extent to which an engagement letter requires arbitration or mediation or kind of pursues this alternative dispute resolution path is ultimately a business decision that has to be made. But some things to consider are disputes concerning fees that the auditor might be looking to collect from its clients are generally straightforward claims, right, which are brought by the auditor for which there is little downside to arbitration, which of course tends to be less costly. But for malpractice and similar theories against the auditor, arbitration involves greater risk because the auditor is 
often the defendant and does not control the facts of the case. There is more nuance and variability in the application of malpractice and common law standards combined with the fact that arbitration does not have procedural safeguards to counterbalance that risk. Um, And in many cases, the best defense is a good offense, but a good offense is more difficult to prepare with the more limited discovery that you have in arbitration. Of course, on the other hand, there are risks to having a jury decide the outcome of litigation. It's kind of as we alluded to before, and as we discussed, jurors often have a misunderstanding of an auditor's role and the purpose of an audit. Yeah, uh, one of the things that you can do to to protect against that is to include in the in the engagement letter a clause that precludes the the right to a jury trial, so that if an action is brought, it will have to be decided by a judge, and and that can be really helpful because judges, especially in business courts, tend to be much more aware of the dynamics of what auditors do when they don't do. We had a case several years ago for a very substantial amount of money, and uh, we used a mock jury in advance to see how a jury would relate to the issues that were going to be presented. And it is shocking to listen to lay people in a jury after having been informed about what auditors do and what they don't do, completely go off the rails and just go on their basic assumption that the job of auditors is to look at every little thing that happens in a company and to look for fraud and to question and test. And so um, that really had an impact on how we ultimately resolved that case. But it also was a good education for uh, our auditing client about the need to have a waiver of jury trial as part of the engagement letter. Interesting. So probably the best outcome here would be not to have a malpractice claim. And I'm curious if there's uh, some things with regard to auditing issues that you find leave folks most susceptible that they could be looking at and get out in front of. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we do seem to see some of the same a substantive areas of the audit that are kind of rife for malpractice claims. And those tend to be hard to value assets. Um, It's a good idea to include in your work papers the reasons for, you know, selecting one valuation method over another and to justify the reasons that you're doing that. Confirmations also tend to be a, a, a big one with in audit malpractice claims. It's important to make sure that those confirmations are coming directly from third parties and not the client itself. Um, and that those confirmations have all of the requisite information and no glaring red flags. Yeah, we had a really interesting confirmation, interesting from a lawyer's point of view, not from the client's point of view, uh, (laughs) action several years ago on a confirmation question. A client of ours was the auditor for a life settlement fund. A life settlement fund is a fund that buys other people's life insurance policies, pays the premiums on them, kind of ghoulish, waits for them to die, collects the the insurance settlement, and that's supposed to be an investment vehicle. The fund, however, was running short on enough money to pay the premiums. And so they, they placed the policies in the hands of a broker to sell them, counting on the broker to be paid paying the uh, insurance premiums. So during the confirmation process, questions were asked about the evidence which supported that the policies were still either owned by the fund or that the fund had sufficient funds to pay the premiums. And instead of getting confirmation directly from the fund or from uh, on ownership, they got confirmation from a third party stating that they understood that the money to pay the premiums was somewhere. <laughs> 
And of course, that's that's not sufficient confirmation evidence, but it's it's what was given at the time early on in the audit. And the the young auditor who was doing the confirmations checked the box as if the confirmation had been made. Well, months and months went by until it was finally determined that an opinion on the audit could not be issued. But in that time period, millions of dollars of policies had been stolen by the broker. And so a claim was made that had the auditor at the time that the confirmation was given, rejected it, it would have set off red flags. People would have been alerted that the confirmation was insufficient, that there were problems going on at the fund, and action could have been taken to prevent the loss of millions of dollars of policies. So it's important not only to conduct the audit in a proper fashion at the end when you're signing off on it and doing your quality control review. But this is a, a stark reminder that the auditing process goes on and on. And if things come to light during the audit that are serious red flags, they shouldn't be ignored. Mark and Aaron, any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with today? You know, just to underscore that there are really so many different ways that you can use your engagement letter to minimize your risk and to really consider those in advance because better than a good defense is not having to subject yourself to litigation at all. And and an engagement letter is a really great tool for, for minimizing your chances of getting embroiled in litigation that you don't belong in. Wonderful. Mark and Aaron, so glad we could spend some time together today. Many thanks to Hodgson Russ for making this discussion possible to our listeners. I'm so glad you could join us. Stay well, and we'll see you for the next episode of Thought Leaders with Hodgson Russ. Thanks for downloading Thought Leaders in Law and Business. Listen to new episodes bi-weekly on Wednesdays and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more, visit bizjournals.com Hodgson Russ Thought Leaders. This podcast does not provide legal advice.